podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Alderson. Hey, Nick Hanna is out this uh, today. I believe he's in Canada, Vancouver, specifically going up and down the coast with his his uh, girlfriend chasing steelhead. Sounds like a good time. Uh, with us today is Jeff Armstrong. Jeff, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. So Jeff and I met on the um, this infamous tuna trip that we um, that, that we've been talking about lately on the show. Um, we him and I actually carpooled from Chico to San Diego and then back again. So we spent a lot of time in the car, uh, got to know each other pretty well in that time. I recommend if you want to know more about anyone, spend about, you know, 18 hours in the car with them and you will. Um, so Jeff, I, 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 he, he, he told me that he, uh, owned Neutralon and I didn't, I'd heard the name, but I didn't really know what they were about, but, um, we wanted to talk about Neutralon a little bit. And then also the reason, We've got him on the show. Is he actually, in, in addition to owning and operating Neutralon, you also do what for ponds? Well, we we do a lot of uh, pond management and small lake management, um, vegetation management. Um, we try to come up with management plans for lakes, especially lakes that have fish in them. Yeah. So, yeah, we were, I think when we even got on the pond subject, it was because I was talking to you about the office, the Cal Park, California Park office here in, in Chico, and you actually manage that lake. That's correct. And it's a huge lake. It's like, how many acres is that thing? About 50 surface acres. Yeah. And what's really nutty is that the deepest part of that lake is how deep? I'd say it's probably around 19 feet. It's part of the old yeah. Dead Horse Slough. So you get into that old slough channel, and there's a deep channel that runs down to the uh, spillway. So basically, like deadhead from the spillway to the the bridge there. Correct. That's that's all twenty plus feet. Yeah, it's it's a narrow kind of corridor, but yeah, it's about twenty feet deep. And there's you uh you you were telling <laughs> me you found a um a dead sturgeon in there one time, right? Yeah, we removed. We used to do some of the commercial maintenance uh, in the grounds uh, at California Park, and we got a call about a four foot dead catfish. Uh, <laughs> it didn't sound right, so um, I went out, and sure enough, I'd heard reports that there were sturgeon spotted in the lake from time to time, and we removed a deceased, oh, probably one hundred and twenty five pound white sturgeon. Damn. I wonder how it got in there. Probably a little bucket biology going on. Most likely. Yeah. Well, um, before we dig into Cal Park and then the other other lakes around the area, I mean, most of the lakes that you manage are private, but um, it's still kind of fun to talk about them because if you if you either fish private lakes or you happen to own a private lake, luckily, lucky you, first of all, um, it's it's a really interesting balance of, of um, aesthetics versus a habitat for fish, right? Yeah, it's a balance and 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 it can be balanced. It's a, it's planning, you know, and if 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 it, I would generally say that the best situation is that you plan before you you dig or excavate or dam or whatever in building a lake so that you know it's easier to manage down the line. Most situations are not like that. Most of the calls we get are existing ponds with yeah with issues um and we have to balance you know the uh, needs of the fish the, the aesthetics and the uses of the lake whether it's a swimming lake uh boating lake you know, like cal park it's a um it, it is a uh, no motor boats allowed just electric trolling motors and so a lot of these uh patio boats have electric trolling motors on them and if they get entangled in 
weed growth, you know, out cruising the lake in the summer, there's a real issue. So Yeah, right. And there's a ton of bass in this lake, I'm learning. There's some big bass in this lake. They're hard to catch, but there's a ton of them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so let, let's just go back a bit. Um, so how, what did you get your, I know you, you've got your degree. What did you get your degree and would you study and where'd you go to college? Actually, we'll go back even a little further. Oh, if you okay. really want to know somebody, get cabin number nine uh, on the uh, fishing boat that Chad and I were in. Oh, dude. Yeah, I forgot all about that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, cell number nine. And <laughs> yeah, so. Two, two biggest guys. We, we, got, stu- <laughs> we got stuck because we were the FNGs on the, on the trip. <laughs> so we got stuck in the, uh, I guess, the back of the boat down in pretty much it was by the live well right i think it's a converted bathroom really yeah it was it was so small i mean there's prison prison conditions that are better in terms of (laughs) square footage but you couldn't like to just to get down there's two bunks you know stacked and uh to get i had to get down to mine the door wouldn't even open all the way to get into the cabin because it would hit the it would hit the bunk so if you can imagine it's like maybe three and a half feet deep i would guess maybe four feet deep by about eight feet okay. and um yeah so we we got yeah i totally i, I had actually put that all out of my mind but, blocked it out yeah. well moving on uh, i got a degree in uh, horticulture at uh, chico state back when it was a state and not a university um i've been involved with uh um like the pest control industry um held uh agricultural pest control advisors license uh structural uh pest control license um taught at the university for several years in landscape related courses so most of my background is turf and ornamental and then uh probably oh maybe 25 years ago i have a wandering mind i like to look at new things and learn them and and nobody was doing any kind of lake management and so um, I delved into that. I've been managing Cal Park Lakes for probably 25 years, maybe 30 years. So, um, and there's just, it's not a very big club. There's not many people that do that um, type of work. So yeah. I've kind of focused in the last few years on on lakes. Yeah. And I've got a, I've got a few friends with private lakes and then, you know, I'll go, hey, uh, if you need your lake done. And they're like Jeff Armstrong, <laughs> yeah. So it's you know I think you are the the man here. And then when did you start Neutralon? Probably thirty five years ago. I had a landscaping company at the time. I was contracting um, and I was teaching at the same time. And um, I just decided to, to to try something different, branch out into focus on turf and um, and ornamentals rather than installation. Mm-hmm. So um, we kind of came up with the name, my wife and I. Mm-hmm. I remember my very first account. It was basically a, a turf fertilization company at the time. And since we branched out into, um, you know, plant nutrition and, uh, and different, you know, disease control, insect control, mm-hmm. and turf and ornamentals, mostly uh, in the Butte County area, we service, we service a lot of places. So um- – I'm not building a house, but I know a few people that are, and they're getting lands or they're about to get landscape going. What, what variety of lawn helps? So is a lawn variety important? First of all, to pick when you get it, when you're going to put a new house. Well, it depends on how much water we have in the future. So um, let's assume we're not going to have that much. I would, I would, I would probably move towards some of the uh, improved common Bermudas that, that, um, I mean, the B word up here is, is, you know, people, Bermuda grass. That's hate, a, hate it. Yeah. You know, I think I used devils, to have to devil, cut, devil, cut that out. Yeah. With devil the, grass and stuff. But, yeah. you know, the, the improved common is, um, uh, Yukon is one variety and it was developed for northern latitudes. There are full sun lawns, but, you know, if times get tight, um, they can survive on probably a quarter of the water of a cool season, you know, tall fescue lawn. And they repair themselves in the summer. They don't require a lot of chemical support. Um, they use, uh, you can water them, you know, once established, you can water them once a week. There is that, that particular variety, Yukon, is a seeded lawn. So if that's something that you want to put in, then generally you do so in the summer. You plant you plant your seed in the summer. So when you say it's a seeded lawn, it it, it means it doesn't come in as sod. Is that 
Yeah, it doesn't come good. in doesn't come in rolls. rolls. You, you can you can get some of the Bermudas in rolls, like some of the hybrid Bermudas and so forth, Tiff Way, Tiff Green, and so forth. But um, I like the Yukon. I like the color. I like the texture. Um, it's it's upright. It has a really pleasing green color. And again, you know, as much as I like cool season lawns and that beautiful, lush, dark green and so forth, at some point in time, um, water will be an, an issue once again. And yeah. while the neighbor's lawns are shriveling and, and turning brown, they're going to probably think that you're bogarting water because <laughs> you know, oh, right, right, right. your lawn's doing just fine, you know, with once a week. So when, so when did you make the decision to get into the pond game? Well, once again, probably 20, 25 years ago, I, I just found it really interesting. Um, it's a, it's kind of one of those deep subjects, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and so I started researching, finding people who knew a whole lot more than I did at the time. And so I worked with uh, UC Davis and a variety of sources that, that had you know facilities for aquatic research and so forth, and uh, belonged to an aquatic society for a while, weed society, and and there was it was a group of scientists and me. <laughs> I was the right. non-scientist, but the I parties must have been amazing, huh? Oh yeah, it was actually these were a lot of fun people. So oh, that's good. It was. <laughs> it was not not a sterile environment. That's but, cool. But yeah, it was good people. And so, you know, ever since we've we've uh, we've selected, you know, a, a number of lakes to work with, and so forth, and vice versa. And um, and uh, we've tried to stay as local as we possibly could because I I'd rather be fishing than, you know, commuting to a lake and so forth. And we do mm-hmm. we've done a fair amount of consultation with lakes as well and so forth. I've worked. A little bit with um, professional aquaculture services, Tony Vaught. We're lucky enough to have, you know, uh, a fish expert in the Chico area. Um, and uh, I've learned a number of things from him on fish health and so forth. So I've been very fortunate to have some good mentors. And he is he a biologist here in Chico then? I don't know what his background is. He started the Chico Game Fish Farm in oh, okay. 1988, I think, and he used to raise sturgeon and raised um, uh, striped bass. I think PG&E um, paid for that and uh, to mitigate, you know, damage done to striped bass somewhere. And so we used to he would raise them, and then they were stocked. And then at some point, the state decided that they didn't want any more striped bass because they predated on salmon or whatever the mm-hmm. reason. And so they released, I think, what what he had left in San Luis Reservoir. And so there's a population there. Really? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's where they went. <laughs> and I'm sure they thrived. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so you, I didn't realize that you had that background in, in – um, in, in, on the chemical side. So I've read, I ran across this article the other day about Roundup and, you know, that it's actually there. A lot of their reps say you can drink it, but they actually don't drink it. Um, is, you know, Roundup being in the ecosystem here in the, in the river, do you think, you know, the, is in terms of runoff from ag, do you think it's something to worry about or it's so, it's such a small parts per million that it just is, doesn't make a difference? Well, I mean, there's a lot of products in water that um, probably shouldn't be there. And glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup, is probably the most widely used herbicide. Um, there have not been a lot of advances. However, I just I just read a report um, that they, because of what ge- ge- genomics of uh, the study of, of of what biogeomes and so forth that they've come up with perhaps a new class of herbicide. Um, and they they found that all microorganisms, um, particularly fungi, will uh, create toxins to inhibit competition from other fungi. And then they also create um, uh, systems within themselves to protect themselves from their toxins. And um, they they've somehow... Uh, researched the the gene structure of of thousands of different fungi and have come up with perhaps a new class of herbicides first time in 30 years that you know and it would be you know very very benign to um to humans 
but and and it has you know implications in cancer research, cancer fighting drugs, mm-hmm. and everything else. So it's it's pretty exciting. That's so, pretty cool. What's the timeline for it to maybe possibly come to market? I think they already have the an herbicide now, and with a lot of a lot of plants becoming glyphosate resistant. Which is a real problem. So that's a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't think that by so, itself, that glyphosate is is is. So you know, basically, thing. Roundup's really just the brand name that glyphosate is sold under for this one company. Is that right? So right. It's it, prevailing in many other brands. Then oh, big time. It's, are there are there is glyphosate in stuff that say so you could buy over the counter? Say so go to oh, Lowe's and buy it. Absolutely, you probably find okay. four or five different comp- you know companies okay. that produce glyphosate. Do you okay? So again, do you feel like there the the concentration of glyphosate that's running off right now? You know, in, in typical runoff conditions, is something we need to worry about? No, I don't. No? Okay. I think it it inactivates in the soil. Um, I think you know bifenthrins and so forth, which are the most widely used pyrethroid insecticide now, and st- structural pest control and so forth. And now they have um, restrictions on how they use it on non-porous, you know, um, surfaces because of runoff concerns. And so, what ten years ago, fifteen years ago, diazinon was was the culprit, you know, that was showing up in surface waters. Mm-hmm. And now it's bifenthrin, which is the most widely used pyrethroid in the world. So basically, the issue would be that this this uh, this chemical leaches down to a certain part of the soil, but then can't go any further. And then year over year gets more and more concentrated and slowly seeps off. Is oh, that I, what's going on? No, I just think that a lot has to do with the product solubility and so forth. But, you know, when you look at, and, and this will probably could at some point lead into to talking about pond management and weed control in ponds, um, that um, we use uh, glyphosate sometimes for certain pond weeds at very, very low concentrations. But its its uses, uh, particularly in cow park lakes and so forth, it's highly monitored by the, the Regional Water Quality Control Board, Clean Water Act permits, and so forth. When you look at products like um, that have been pretty much taken off the residential market, say like diazinon and so forth, organophosphate, uh, which that chemistry was developed, you know, as a as a nerve poison in the war, and they figured, well, if it kills people, it probably kills bugs, you know, and so <laughs> it was one of the most widely used pesticides uh, oh. in in the world, and at one point, and uh, but some of these products, when you start looking at the what it does to the food web and and so it's not so much that you know something will show up in water it's what it does when it's in the water and and then you know, the absorption rates up the well it's the killing chain. if it's killing invertebrates you know which are part mm-hmm. of the food chain um you start knocking out you know central parts of the food chain then you know you're you're Predator fish and the fish that we want to catch on a fly and release um, aren't going to be there. Okay, so it's not. I shouldn't think of it as like absorption rates from mercury and how it gets no. passed up uh, from from a predation perspective. This is just literally breaking a link or two in the chain. Yep. Okay. All right. Um. So with with respect, I just want to transition to like you know just pond management and you know what are what are some of like your day to day operations or duties that you guys that you guys deal with well i do actually for neutron i i do most of the pond work myself and my production manager Jaden is is in training he just came back from two days down at uh the the aquatic weed school at davis so two intensive days down there i've been to that a number of different times um and you know let's let's take a maybe take a step back and let's take a look at at kind of a healthy lake, a healthy pond, yeah, okay. and, and what, cool. what, what, what would be an ideal situation? So, when when we approach a lake, I want to find out first of all, you know, um, certain things about the lake. So, uh, where does the water come from? You know, is it a, is it is it a is it a dam? Is it an excavation? Is it an end use? Is that is that where the water ends up, or does you know is it like an impounded? Uh, creek that is seasonal, perhaps like Cal Park Lake. Um, uh, it's uh, dammed um, from Dead Horse Slough. So, um, and those have implications with permits and different 
agencies and so forth if it's considered waters of the United States. So um, we have we have to be very careful about you know our background you know on on a lake. So that's just to establish jurisdiction and possible permitting issues that might pop up, stuff like that when you go in. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And and then. I want to find out what the lake is used for. You know, do you, do you want to swim in the lake? Do you um, do you have fish in the lake? What type of fish do you do you want to have in the lake uh, to predominate in the lake and so forth? Um, and then I have to take, of course, I want to know the volume of the lake and so forth. And quite often, I have to find that out myself. You know, because I want to know how many gallons of water. And, are yeah, in the and lake. you told me how that's calculated, which was it's pretty interesting how you did it. Yeah, yeah. So, like in Cal Park Lake, you know, we've transected it with with sonar, and and then there is software that will compute your your actual volume of the lake and so forth. And if we have to do any type of weed control treatments, you know, uh, or selective treatments, then we know exactly what kind of volume that we're dealing with, application wise, Mm -hmm. and so forth. Um, And if, again, just little snippets, if if I were to build a fish lake, a fishing lake, and so forth, I would probably try to dedicate about 25% to habitat. And that habitat would be a combination of perhaps, you know, like, rock or artificial structures it would be um a christmas trees that you know are on the bottom to provide harborage for um forage fish and you know juvenile fish and so forth i heard like the scout the scouts in chico dumped a ton of uh uh trees out there right yeah Uh, yeah you're gonna have to tell me exactly where at some point and uh and so um and then Typically, I'd like to see, you know, anywhere from like 15 to 20 percent um, uh, vegetative growth in the lake. And, and I'd like to see a combination of both like submerged, emergent, and, and floating vegetation. So an example of an emergent would be coming out of the water might be bulrush or something. Maybe not cattails since they're real, real invasive. Um, but bulrush uh, has height to it and... Um, and provides harborage for, um, you know, for forage fish and, and, and so forth. But it also, you know, gives the young fish kind of cover from predation from birds and oh, so forth. Yeah. Now you got habitat for red-winged blackbirds and so forth. And then uh, pond lilies and so forth, you know, they can be quite invasive too. Some people plant them in actual pots or containers in their ponds and so forth. But then those shade the water and also provide, you know, they cool the water a little bit and so forth. And then the type of of pond, you know, growth that you're going to put in some of this this 15%, 10 or 20% of your lake volume um, would be relegated to something that is not too invasive, that that is native, um, you know, not like a Eurasian water milfoil, which is a non-native invasive and can, you know, top out and, and choke out native plant material. So it'd be, you know, the correct choice of plant material. And then from there, how to manage that plant material, how to keep it from being 100% of your pond. And that's generally where we come in is is on the, the 911 calls when right. you know, somebody goes out and says, I, I can't even see the water. You yeah. Know? And unfortunately, in that situation, they've allowed something because they haven't been proactive. They allowed something to get out of hand. So whether it's an algae or plant growth and so forth, then we have to be very, very careful because typically when your water temp hits 60 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when most of these weeds will come marching up from the bottom mud, from reproductive structures in the mud and so forth. That's when your cattails start to emerge and so forth. And, and, uh, and so things happen quickly at that point. And, you know, if you don't have a management plan in effect, then by the time you're ready to act, the water temp like last year in Cal Park Lake, uh, in July, it was 89.7 degrees Fahrenheit at two feet deep. <clears throat> so now you have a stressor on the fish because the water is so warm. Even for bass. Yeah. <laughs> even for bass. And, and, and then if, if, in fact, the lake stratifies, you may have 
virtually no oxygen in some of the lower reaches of the lake. And and can you define that term for some of the folks that are listening? Well, yeah, fish in general, you know, rely on dissolved oxygen in the water. And what creates dissolved oxygen in the water, uh, wave action, wind over the top, usually you'll find your greatest concentration of dissolved oxygen in in the the surface waters and so forth. And we're talking lake still waters. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And and so trout require, you know, 10 to 13 parts per million um, dissolved oxygen. So they require a lot of oxygen. A pike, you know, pickerel and things like mm-hmm. that, they can they can survive on two, which is interesting. So you look, say, what kind of habitat do those fish inhabit? You know, shallow, you know, bays and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, warm water and so forth. As water warms, its ability to hold oxygen drops. So um, you kind of got the double whammy. And and if your wheat problems are, you know, midsummer and so forth, you've allowed them to accumulate. And you say, well, I just have to get this lake, you know, usable. And, and you've got a heavy biomass of, of weeds in the lake. <clears throat> then you have to be very, very careful in your treatment strategies because – you know, if you go in and and kill, you know, some part, all of of what you consider the weeds in the lake, then the bacteria are going to break that material down and they're going to use oxygen. In a 24-hour period, you know, your lowest dissolved oxygen is going to be right at sunrise. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because your 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 plants and so forth your green plants in the lake are photosynthesizing they're creating oxygen and you're getting it from the plants you're getting it from wind action if you're fortunate enough to have that across the surface of your lake and so forth but at night everything uses oxygen and so you you get this big swing in dissolved oxygen so before we would treat a lake I would prefer to go in at five in the morning and check the dissolved oxygen at two feet, three feet, four feet with a meter. And you can buy reliable meters for, for not, you know, necessarily an arm and a leg and, and then find out what my dissolved oxygen is. You You do that in the mornings. I do that at, at five in the morning, you know, just before sunrise. And if it's below five, below five is considered degraded water. And, and, you know, that's going to put a stressor on fish. And if, if, if I've got, say if I go in at noon and I had five, I wouldn't go near that pond in, in terms of treatment goes because <clears throat> until conditions change because. You're just going to make it even go more into the red if you kill anything. Right. And then. And the at, decomposition at, of whatever you kill is going right. to just take up any more oxygen that's yep. there. It may drive it down to zero. It could. And, yeah, and then, okay. you know, another thing too is that. Uh, people ask me about aeration. Oh, well, that's, mm-hmm. is that going to take care of my algae problems? Well, not necessarily. So even at, at Cal Park, we're running a, a program right now where we're checking the dissolved oxygen at different depths in one of the coves. And what we're looking for is is thermal stratification that during the summer, uh, like if you dive into a, a lake, you know, you'll notice mm-hmm. that that water gets colder like faster right as, as, yeah, yeah. As, you're, as you're getting yeah. deeper and so forth. Um, and with like, say, uh, Cal Park Lake and so forth, there are sections of the lake that during the summer will stratify because the water becomes more dense and so forth. And you get thermal stratification where the bottom layer of the lake, um, has very, very low dissolved oxygen and where we get that thermal stratification, that would be a candidate for aeration, because it, it's going to lift the water and mix it. So it's not so much just putting bubbles in the water. It's, it's a lifting like a diffuser system where right. you have an, you have an on ground compressor and then you have weighted hoses to like almost like the things that are bubbles in aquarium. So the this stratification of the lake isn't really, it's not a uniform thing across <laughs> the entire mass of the water. There's certain areas where it's, it's going to need this. So you have to like surgically go in measure the dissolved oxygen look where the stratification is and then decide to aerate or not is that right yeah yeah i mean all lakes will stratify that's where you you have as fishermen know the thermocline you know that's all about stratification where you have the different densities of water 
and you have the upper level, and generally the, the fish are not going to be well below the thermocline because your dissolved oxygen is going to be lower down there. Another issue that you have, especially in algae and so forth, is that if you do have stratification in your lake and say, uh, ideally your lake is like eight feet deep, you know, and a lot of them aren't, they're four feet deep. And you run into some problems because of light penetration to the mm -hmm. bottom, and that's going to fuel weed growth and so mm -hmm. forth. But let's say it's eight feet deep, and the bottom two feet during the summer just are very, very low dissolved oxygen. What happens is there is a biochemical reaction in in the water at, at the surface of the mud, and it, it will recirculate. Uh, particulate phosphorus and so forth. The phosphorus, it's tied up in the sediments mm -hmm. and it recycles the phosphorus. And then that phosphorus is, is, is the number one limiting factor for plant growth. So, you know, and it, and it's recycling the, the phosphorus back into the ecosystem. And of course, it's just going to, and say, for instance, blue green algae, which are truly a cyanobacteria, uh, they don't need nitrogen. They're, nitrogen fixers so they can take atmospheric nitrogen and make it usable all they need is phosphorus and so a lot of situations where they have large you know problems with algae and phytoplankton and so forth it's about phosphorus management it's about trying to limit the amount of phosphorus so when so talk about um when people talk about the a lake turning over what the heck's going on there like what what you know in in the water what's going on well, uh, I think water is densest at um, 34.9 or 30.7 degrees Fahrenheit um, and because ice floats, you know. So obviously it's, you know, so it's, it's, it's densest at about 34.5 degrees Fahrenheit. And, you know, when, when your surface temperatures on the lake get, get colder and more dense than the temperatures below – then that water is literally going to sink and, and you're going to get recycling. So you're going to get a lot of nutrients that were on the bottom that maybe didn't have enough oxygen to decompose and so forth. They're going to be recycled up to a higher depth. And that's kind of a lake turnover. So when you say recycled, is it is it literally like the because that, that uh, heavier column of water is going down, and then when it hits, does it just kicks up that organic matter and that stuff floats up to the top? Is yeah. that what we're talking yeah. about? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, because there are certain times in 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 Almanor where I'll be paddling around and I'm like, oh, it's super dirty. And it was in the spring when I noticed that. But yeah, and lakes that freeze over will generally, you know, have turnovers and so forth. Not all lakes have turnovers, yeah. and the ponds, a lot of ponds don't because they're shallow and they're not they're not they're not stratified. But you know, stratification can can be a real issue, and so that's why it's it's that's always a component of our control, any kind of weed control programs that we mm -hmm. have and so forth. We want to know what's happening at different depths in that lake, and um, you know, lakes are kind of like teenagers; uh, they're they're different every day, and it's not it's a dynamic process because your pH changes over a twenty four hour period. You've got carbon dioxide being produced, you know, during night from respiration of plants and bacteria and everything else. So you've got cycles of, of pH swings. You've got water chemistry is constantly changing. All those factors, you know, we have to take into effect as to what we're going to do with the lake, what the lake will handle. And whether it's going to be detrimental to populations of, 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 of zooplankton, of phytoplankton, of, you know, the food web. So, yeah. And, and when you're building an artificial lake, you literally have to consider the entire ecosystem. It's, it's really important from the start. You know, if you, if you, you say, well, a good portion of my lake, I'm going to make it deep enough to where I really don't have so many weed control issues. You know, I'm putting in harborage for fish and so forth. I've got vegetation, you know, at, you know, perhaps in shallower shells of the lake where it can, it can flourish and I don't have to worry about trying to, you know, control it. Um, and again, that's just part of the essentials of the food web is you've got, uh, you've got aquatic insects that mm -hmm. need that vegetation. You've got fish that, that perhaps spawn on that vegetation, you know, and then you've got harborage for the young fish and, and your forage fish and so forth. So the careful planning of a pond is, is crucial. And I tell people, you know, 
especially like with water ski lakes and things, mm-hmm. and a lot of the water ski lakes have fish in them. And I tell people if you don't have a thousand bucks a surface acre a year for management, don't don't even start the project. You know, and really, yeah, I mean that, and that's a that's that's a that's a that might be a high figure, you know, because a lot of the water ski lakes are fifteen surface acres, mm-hmm. but you know. Say, for instance, Floridone, which is a product that a lot of these lakes use to control certain aquatic weeds. That's that dye? No, it's, no. It's, uh, it's, it's a chemical, Floridone. It's, it's marketed as sonar. Um, there are now some generics out there. But it runs you know, $2,000 a gallon. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's like Evian water, basically. <laughs> So yeah, so anyway, you you, you want to you, you don't want to have to use products, you know, that that careful planning, you know, can take care of ahead of time, yeah. you know. And then, you know, I I see um some lakes are just like this weird blue or weird green color. What's uh, going on there? Well, and we we employ that in some lakes and it's called light attenuating dyes and they're food grade dyes that that absorb a spectrum of light that plants want. So it's denying um, chlorophyll production in or re- reducing it in in lakes, and um, so there is a product called Aquashade, which is a blue dye, and it absorbs a spectrum that that is favorable to photosynthesis, and um, and it's it's labeled for you know weed suppression and algae suppression and so forth. There are a lot of light attenuating dyes out there, pond dyes and so forth that that probably do the same thing um, that are not labeled as an herbicide. But um, so people say, well, it makes the lake look like tidy bowl or, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that has to do with if whether or not there's colloidal clay in the lake, um, which is going to give it a really weird color, Hmm. you know, because clay particles are, are just, they're actually crystalline structure. They are just microscopic. You can't, you can't even examine clay with a microscope. You, you need an electron microscope. It's that tiny. Uh, but it's little pieces of silica, basically. Basically, uh, two tablespoons of, of clay laid side edge to edge to edge to edge to edge. These little flat like plates would cover two acres. Oh wow! Yeah, it's a pretty amazing. So when you get it in, the, in your water and so forth in a lake, some lakes you know have uh, you know clay banks and so forth. Mm-hmm. Then uh, the it, by the colloidal means it's just not going to settle out. So when you look at some of these lakes, they they look like chalk well you put a light attenuating dye in one of those lakes and you're gonna probably end up with tidy bowl yeah so if i mean if it's little pieces of silica it's just the light it's little prisms all over the lake yeah, right well i don't know about that but it's 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 a subject all onto its own that's crazy but, but we use light attenuating dyes at uh in cal park lake and and we've really reduced the need for algicides and so forth um and we've suppressed other issues with with something that is completely non toxic, you know. Yeah, totally inert. Just, yeah. You could put it in. You could put eggs in it, right? Oh yeah. Basically, dye eggs with the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was interesting because we we did an addition of of colorant to the lake, and it was right before the fire um, that they had up in the right above Cal Park, and so the helicopters were scooping wa- very blue <laughs> yeah. water out. So I can only right. imagine what it looked we, like. We watched that. We got or Nick <laughs> shot some pretty cool video. So um, I know, you know, having having fished with you for three days and spending all that time in the car, we talked about fishing a lot, and I learned that you're an avid fisherman. Um, just give give everybody a rundown of what boats you employ and where you go, because I want to tie this back into ta- pond management in a second. Well. Um, I'm down to three boats right now. Oh, you're down to three boats. <laughs> yeah. And so right now, like this morning, I was fishing in my Flats Cat, which is was built in Texas. We yeah, you're telling built. me about it. Yeah, and it's a tunnel hull with a prop on an electro jack plate, 90-horse uh, Yamaha. What's an electro jack plate? It's a, a plate on the back that, that physically lifts the motor up into the stream of the tunnel. So it'll it, it's a it this is a glass boat it was designed to to have a polling platform on it you know and to get up on step to get on like plane right in 17 feet in the length of the oh, boat wow. so it's kind of like the the jack plane's kind of like if you're going to put pods on the back of your 
your boat well, is the same concept or the jack plate is 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 to raise the motor up I, and but this one is, is it, oh, it physically done. moves the motor oh, up yeah. it lifts uh, the whole motor up. oh wow and so you know once i get up on plane i'll i'll take the motor up and um so that the prop is might be a couple inches below the boat the bottom of the boat maybe so that's so that, you're not running a jet it's a no. prop with a tunnel hole and then this jet okay yeah i have people try to wave me down you know trying say, to figure out yeah, how the hell you're well, doing yeah <laughs> or yeah don't don't go there don't go there yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah you'll ruin your boat i'm you sure know. you confuse the hell out of people it's a great boat it's a great boat for fly fishing as well because it's what it was, was designed for so you don't have you know you don't have hooks and this and that's you know to, yeah. to snag your line on and so forth so it's, it's just clean inside not grabby it's a great boat yeah and then i've got a i've got a remote electric uh trolling motor on the front 70 what? 70 pound thrust and 24 volt does that uh do you know how much that boat weighs because we're we're in the process of getting a boat put together and i'm wondering i want to get something it'll just hold in it in sack current you know well i we can spend an hour on that one because okay. I, I just replaced mine. I went from a 12 to a 24 volt and from a 55 to a 70 pound thrust. And then I've got a boat up at our cabin up in yeah. Bucks Lake. That's a low. It's a 1448 low. And then I have a work boat that's a 1448 low um, and because it's very, very stable. And but it's easy to fly fish out of as well. And, okay. and a variety of different fish. And you run your hummingbird out of your, your, uh, skiff i guess is it a skiff well yeah the flats cat um i've got a helix 10 hummingbird with with mega side scan down scan all that bells and whistles but i i've had probably 30 boats you know over the years i've had four or five different jet boats i think i had one of the first aluminum inboards on the river on the sacramento river i think it was a number three you know and um and then uh um up on my boat at Bucks, I've got two. I run a Garmin and an, another uh, Hummingbird with side scan. So I run them simultaneously, and just I play one against the other because up there a lot of those fish are glued to the bottom, and I can I can pick them up with you know. But the the Helix Ten is 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 trick, you know. And I've had a lot of different. Um, That's the uh, fish finder. Fish finders. So how far? What's the, the side scan goes out? How far? I think it goes out like 150 feet or something, but I I I run it at That's about crazy. 75 feet on each side of the boat. So different resolution, like higher. What is it? Very higher megahertz? So. Is that the deal? Yeah, it's, yeah, it goes from kilohertz to megahertz. Okay. So most of them, like especially like older models, are 800 uh, kilohertz. And this is 1.2 megahertz. So. Um, it's it's very trick, and, and it does. It's the fidelity's good in say moving water. Oh, absolutely. But, you know, it's like they, they sell them in different, you know, screen sizes. Mm -hmm. and, and the one I have up at my Bucks Lake boat is like a seven inch and, and it's insufficient. It's just things are too tiny. I would recommend a 10 or even a 12 if, you know, if you have room for it. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like getting a widescreen TV. <laughs> right. right. There's no, no, yeah. no screens too big if you're going to buy a, a TV for your house. Yeah. Um, so then what, what trolling motor do you run on your, your, your fishing boat, your, your main boat? Um, that one's a hummingbird. I just, just had that one. In fact, you and I picked it oh, up. Oh, is that the we one? Went, yeah. What, is that an Altera? What was that one? No, it's, uh, I, I actually had mine dumbed down because I, I did not want, um, some of the features, two things I did not want was to wear a, a menu and, uh, you know, control around my neck. The land on the lanyard, yeah. The lanyard. I've got yeah. a little Mickey Mouse watch that I can just touch and, and it doesn't have a screen and so forth. Um, I decided that all I wanted was autopilot, which is, is, is a compass driven. Um, some of the, does it just take a heading? How does that? Yeah. Okay. It, it does. You just it, tell it go to that waypoint from yeah. from where we are, and it'll go on a straight line. Yeah, but okay. but there you're affected by current, and mm -hmm. and um, so that can can push you from side to side. Whereas um, some of like the spot lock features that that I think most of the some of the newer uh, trolling motors have mm -hmm. um, is a GPS driven. And so it'll keep you in in a radius, in a certain radius. So if you overfish, you want to stay right here, the wind's blowing, whatever, it's going to keep you within a 15-foot radius. I rejected that and had this one specially, you know, built for me because um, that in the river, you know, 
when you look at my boat, it it has very little freeboard. And what's freeboard mean? It, it's not very far above the water. In fact, I've had okay. people try to catch up with so me. So super me, low gunnels. Oh yeah, tell me that my boat is sinking. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, yeah, it's a very low profile boat, which is great in the wind and so forth. Right, because right. I don't get affected a lot by the I fish ma- in the wind. I imagine it's a beautiful to fish out of. It's a fly tr- it's a very trick. But you take you it just, to the delta. Oh yeah, yeah. And but you just you know you have to watch your step because yeah, you, know, yeah. you end up in the drink. Um, spot lock in the river is going to make corrections, and sometimes they'll be fairly abrupt mm-hmm. because when it, it gets outside of its 15 foot radius, um, it could kick full power, especially if there's a lot of current to get you back in that 15 foot, but it oh, might, might do so with somebody. That could you throw know. you over easy. Yeah. There's no, there's no, uh, kind of like rubber banding kind of setting, you know? So it kind of, instead of just goes from zero to 15 or whatever, it kind of goes gracefully no. up to 15 I scales up i don't believe so i, yeah. I talked to uh sunny's marine who's kind of the the avatar of, of electric trolling motors in california and he uh we, oh the we, guy in, yeah, in sack yeah, yeah, yeah we talked at length about and i sent him photos of the boat and so forth and i was familiar with this system so yeah, it it works. It's it's so sneaky, you know. I can just, <laughs> I just, I put the motor up, you know, and tilt the motor up completely, you know, so my side scan won't hit the motor. Which, oh, whoa, really? It'll do that. Yeah, because that's a that's a fact. When you put your transducer out, you know, it, well, once, it'll just once, throw a shadow down one side. Right? It's going to hit the 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 motor unless the motor sense. tilts up. So, I you know, I had my motor tilted up, put the electric trolling motor, I slide down the bank and it just silent. You see deer, otter, I mean everything, it's quiet and yeah. and for fly fishing it's just perfect. Um so when you when you go after striper, how much of your pond management knowledge do you apply to your striper game? Well, I mean, you know, habitat is is big it depends yeah. on, and on hogan we had hogan brown on and he said the same thing so can from what what's your take on that because we he covered we talked about it a lot but i you know it's always good to hear another another person's perspective on that well hogan probably has forgotten more than i'll ever know about <laughs> striper fishing so we'll, we'll start with well that. i mean just in terms of the habitat though but i mean you know i i really wanted to follow stripers from this last year from pre-spawn from you know to spawn to post spawn, um, and and to un- try to understand resident stripers that don't go back to the delta mm-hmm. or to the bay and so forth, and so each group of fish ha- require different things. So your pre-spawn, you're dealing with a lot of fish that are getting ready to spawn. They're schooled up. You know, they're, they're more than happy to to find. They're at the their, club. They're trying to figure out who yeah. they're going to mate with. Oh yeah, and yeah. they're not. They're not, and they're not. They're not in a predatory mood so much as as they'll sure they'll grab things if it goes by them. But you know, when a, your stripers, you know, say for instance, like the resident stripers and so forth, they're they're predators, and now they're in a predatory mode. So they're not looking for for love they're looking for food and so what what type of habitat is going to provide that food you know and you know i don't think a bluegill you're not going to find a bluegill uh, if that's what a striper prefers you know out in the middle of the river just you know swimming along it's going to be up against you know some type of vegetative Mm -hmm. cover and so forth so right now you know this time of year and so forth like this morning i was i was fishing for salmon and stripers um separately but we we, uh, we were just talking the other day about how it's just awesome that we can go on the sack here and fish for striper and salmon and trout all in the same stretch of water it's pretty crazy it's it's wonderful and i i didn't think that the salmon would really recover from the devastation of the drought and the water politics and so forth mm-hmm. and, it, and it was very discouraging you know, over the last few years and um and we had uh, a friend of myself had two salmon in the boat by eight oh five this morning. Awesome. Um, and uh, and then we uh, then we went to striper fishing. And we how'd we, you guys we, do on the striper? Uh, well, we we caught and released one, and that was it. But I was I was looking for a big one. Yeah, right. I think we all are. <laughs> <laughs> I still have yet to bag a big striper. Well, that was one of my goals this year, and I got a forty and a forty eight. Oh, in, nice. In thirty minutes apart. 
um, yeah, on a very, very special day that I'll never forget as long as I live. And caught, nice. caught, measured them, and, and released them, and and uh, yeah, it was really exciting. They're big fish, and you look yeah. at something like that, and you just go, "How old are you?" You know, it's wonderful. Yeah, you know, um, Hogan's my main takeaway when I was talking to Hogan when we had Hogan on the show, we were talking about it. He said, like, understand the plants that the bugs would live in, that the fish are going to eat on and really understand that the biology of those plants and where they, where, where, where they like to live along the, along the banks. And I think in terms of, you know, from a, I think from a, if you're targeting striper, like structure, the types of structure that they can either ambush out of, or that they're, they're, they're the, the fish that they're preying on are going to want to hide in and feel the most comfortable in you know, it would apply, um, with that in mind, like what types of spe- what, what types of species of plants would you recommend kind of trying to ferret out and, and how would you go about finding them? Well, um, of course in the river, you know, you, you've got floating masses of like at Scotties and so forth of water primrose. So a lot, a lot of the fish are going to hang, you know, right on the edge of of the primrose what's that stuff look like it's got the yellow flower it's it's floating they have to cut it to even create a, a boat path out of scotties and so oh forth. okay so yeah all right like dime size leaves right yeah uh yeah they're bigger than bigger. that but kind of oblong leaves but they've got okay. a, a bright yellow flower and i know what you're talking so about that's, yeah, that's all over there yeah there's primrose and you've got coontail in the river you've got um but i think that probably um you know, what we'd be looking for now is like a vegetation mats along the edge of the river and so forth, three, four, five feet of water where, you know, it's dense enough to provide, you know, cover for you know, forage fish and, mm-hmm. and so forth. Um, and I don't think that like the, the smaller pike minnows and things like that go very far from, you know, being able to turn around and, and, and hide in, yeah. in that type of cover. So, um, you know, I mean, the river has a plethora of different, you know, plant materials in it, but I'm looking for weed masses that are, you know, in quiescent areas, quiet areas and so forth. And, you know, where, where fish doesn't have to fight to, 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 you know, to, to stay, you know, just on the edge of the current, you know, where you can take advantage of Mm -hmm. things going by on the current Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, he's got a good chance of catching somebody sticking their head out of the uh out of the uh, the foliage and so forth so do they do you think that those the striper kind of behave like a dorado does on a kelp bed sometimes or the the dorado kind of circle the kelp bed and where they're darting in and hitting those yeah those bay fish yeah i think okay. to some extent sure you know we were just fishing for dorado what a week ago um, you were you, oh yeah you went again that's right oh yeah it was wonderful where did you go again we went at uh, La Ventada, which is just south of La Paz. We flew direct from Sacramento to um, Cabo San Lucas. And I've been to Cabo San Lucas for twenty years, and I mean it's it's changed, <laughs> you know. You, guys, have, you and your wife went, right? Yeah, yeah. Cheryl and I, and um, and then we shuttled up to La Ventada, which is uh, just a tiny little village, you know above Las Barillas and below La Paz about maybe as a crow flies, maybe as a frigate flies, maybe maybe 20 miles. And we fished out by the island of, I think it's called Cerrado. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm probably butchering that, but anyway. Um, and I, let's see, I caught, um, I landed two yellowfin tuna on a fly. How big? Um, one was about 20 and one was about 30. <laughs> yeah, nasty. I mean, it was a, Drawn out, the, and the larger fish was on a 10-weight uh, XI sage and 400-grain line. And then uh, – and then uh, What reel do you run on that? Uh, it's got a Waterworks, which is what it, I think Lamson makes yeah. Waterworks, and, and it had just a mile of backing. So I just let that <laughs> fish go and That's go awesome, and go. Man. And let them fight the drag, and yeah. and then uh, yeah, there were a lot of broken rods on that trip. You know, not necessarily mine, but others. And then um, we boated and released probably Cheryl and I twenty five Dorado up to about twenty eight pounds. All on the fly rod on poppers. 
Oh, holy rod. Christ. That oh, must yeah. have been awesome. And then I had a rooster come up and rooster fish and eat a popper maybe six feet from me. I watched him just inhale it. And uh, it ended up, it was about 20 pounds. It ended up pulling loose after about 10 minutes into the fight. But, um, and then skipjack were just a nuisance. I mean, they just, <laughs> they would grab, you know, and now you're locked into a skipjack tuna for, I mean, you could watch them buzzing, you know, all over the place yeah, around yeah, yeah. the boat, and they're going down, and and now you're stuck on a skipjack, and there's like ten dorado just begging to be caught, you know, on a popper. Oh, man, it was a hoot. That sounds like a high quality problem, though. Yeah. I wouldn't mind sk- catching skippies all day. High class problem. Yeah. yeah. No, it was it was a wonderful trip. And then That's we got killer. Bonita as well. So wow, that that must it was a week long trip. Yeah. It was excellent. You must have been sore when you got back. Nah. No? Nah. I fished the next day. Stud. <laughs> I was off the river the next morning. <laughs> I fought a tuna for half an hour, and I thought I was going to be dead the next day. So well, th- sore. These are these are smaller. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I, I don't really have any other questions that I can think of. Is there anything that I, I should have asked that I missed, maybe? Let, let me touch on a couple things. One, yeah. okay, one is, cool. that, is that um, – this summer, I got two calls in a week that um, that people had lost fish. Oh, you know, and they're, yeah, and they're the fish pond. kill. And and so again, we talked, we touched on dissolved oxygen mm-hmm. and so forth. And w- what people often do is they'll use copper products, you know, for algicides and algae control, and they get pond scum and, and so forth. And a lot of this stuff starts at the bottom and, and the benthos in the mud. And then with photosynthesis, it, it creates oxygen, the, 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 the strands of, of pond scum, and they float. And then they form like colonies on the surface. So you get that inch mat of green stuff around looks all like, around your looks lake. Looks like a dinosaur cleared its nostrils in your, <laughs> yeah, in your yeah, lake. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And so there's different types of filamentous algaes and, and so forth. And the old standard has always been using copper to and car, copper sulfate, which is um, which can be in itself can be kind of hard on fish. But um, I think the main thing is just to to go easy to understand a little bit about your 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 dissolved oxygen and so forth. Don't let don't let things build up to the point where you, you're going to go out and pull a John Wayne on it, you know, and mm-hmm. you're going to round it up, you know. Well, in both cases with fish kills, that's what happened is the people were going on vacation. They said, man, this stuff is getting way ahead of us. And they went out and they treated too much. And it wasn't so much the copper that hurt the fish. It was the dissolved oxygen that that algae died. Right. Uh, they over-treated the lake. And, and the DO just... Yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of times you'll notice on labels of, of, of herbicides that are registered for use in aquatic environments and so forth, you know, to only treat half a lake or a third of a lake at a time. And that's probably really good advice. And so, you know, if I was going to part with one, I'd just say, you know, definitely read labels yeah. and, and, and do your research because, you know, you can, during the summer, the fish are already stressed. Yeah, and we we were. Um, I know on the the trip down, we were talking about that slime that was on top of the on top of the lake at certain times of the day, and it it's pretty much it's at its height in the afternoon, and then it just kind of recedes in the evening. Is that right? Well, there's there's you're what you're probably talking about are what they call blue green algae, and you you've been hearing about blooms, you know, mm-hmm. and about toxic blooms and so forth in the newspapers on the had, east coast. Yeah, well, they had them on on Orville. They shut down part of Lake Orville. What was it, a year or two ago, and and um, what's happening is that just warming climate and so forth, warming waters, and and you get what's called eutrophic waters, which means well fed. So you've got nutrients, you've got an abundance of nitrogen and or particularly phosphorus in the water. And again, that nutrient recycling issue comes in and um, and leaves you wide open for cyanobacteria blooms. And these are the blue-green, they call them blue-green algae. They are not a true algae. They're not a plant. They're in the, the, the you know kingdom of bacteria. And, and some of them can be bad players. And they'll actually, they can regulate their buoyancy. So they'll take the most and they are nitrogen fixers so they're they're just reliant on phosphorus they can fix atmospheric nitrogen so they They'll, you said something there that was pretty cool so they can they can regulate what level 
of right. the water they're in based on how much available light is there? Is exactly. That, is that the deal? Yeah, okay. They, they get so they the, have like little ballast tanks then. Yeah. And they'll, they'll, that's crazy. And they'll, they'll, uh, and they'll pick a, a strata or a depth that gives it the most opportune for, for photosynthesis because they're, they are cyanobacteria. Huh. We have, I have a, actually have a meter that detects the pigment in, um, blue green algae. As opposed to chlorophyll, it has a pigment called phycocyanin, and I use that meter to determine if one I'm dealing with a phytoplankton bloom or if I've got a cyanobacteria bloom, and I might treat them quite differently. And cyanobacteria blooms, one of the problems with cyanobacteria blooms is that they can become so extensive that that they if they crash, if all of a sudden the, the nutrients become limiting and there's a massive die-off, of the and this is where this is happens commonly like say for instance over in clear lake that's a cyanobacteria. i was actually going to ask you about clear lake that's a cyanobacteria it's probably anabina which is one of the cyanobacterias and 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 when those populations if they crash then they're you could have a massive fish kill yeah like yeah then it takes the oxygen right out of the water because all the bacteria are breaking down their brethren their cyanobacteria and so yeah it's quite common to have fish kills when you have uh, cyanobacteria blooms, and I I deal with them quite a bit, more and, and the, more. And you know when we uh, we got on this subject, I I think I was telling you about my buddy's pond. He's got a small small right. pond, maybe it's an acre, maybe. Um, he he calls me and he's like, "Hey, all my big bass are dying." And I told you that, and you said that's like an early sign of. Well. It's it's a it's a it's a dissolved oxygen issue, yeah. and usually the bigger fish are going to go first because they need more oxygen. And small. yeah, and you'll see them generally if fish are stressed, and and it's another thing that we look for, you know, b- before we do any kind of treatments and so forth, is the condition of the fish. And you know, if you see fish on the surface of the pond, you know, trying to gulp air, I mean, that's death. Looks sign. like they're eating when they're actually not eating. Yeah, they're trying to. Yeah. trying to. I, I've been oxygen. at restaurants in in L.A. <laughs> Where they have their koi ponds, and all these fish are just like they're sipping the water, but there's no food, and people are like, "Oh, they're they want they're hungry." And I'm like, now if I knew better, I'd be like, "No, they're gonna die here." Pretty well, soon. I'm not sure that some fish <laughs> just kind of do that anyway. Okay. But but like when you get unusual schooling uh, of uh, like bass, black bass, and so forth near the surface of the water, because mm-hmm. um, they they don't typically do that because they get predated on by right. birds and things, so that's unnatural and and. Um, you start looking for those types of behavior, and um, and in a situation like that, you know, it's it's you would never go in and do any type of treatment that's going to further degrade the dissolved oxygen. And that's where we really go to our meters right away and try to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And, so so when you get the five alarm fire, you get called in, and it's just like this mm-hmm. thing's already raging out of control. How do you get it back? Like what what steps do you take to get it back to? Uh, you know, like a healthy pond and how long does it take? Well, the first thing I do is I run and hide <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because usually when it's at that point, unless you have some type of, of aeration, yeah. say for instance, you know, a, you have a, a, a well or, or something that, that feeds your pond. Um, I would probably construct a situation where that water comes from the well and then and then runs over some sort of a washboard or something to try to incorporate more air into the water and train mm-hmm. more air into the water before it enters the lake, as it enters the lake, and so forth. So, I mean, I'd flip on the pump, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 hope that that would improve the dissolved oxygen. It would probably lower the temperature of the water. Do you need extent. Do you need like for, uh, a new water source to do that, or can you just simply pump? water out of the existing lake and run it back down the trough so um, to speak. that would help you know and there are different types of aerators there are some that that you know float on the water that pull in air and then jet it down in the mm-hmm. water um, and a lot of these aeration systems are not that expensive that have like a, a quarter or half horsepower compressor uh, that they're that are quiet that mm-hmm. that don't consume a tremendous amount of energy and you have the weighted lines that are on the bottom of the lake and then you have your diffuser um, devices that that create this you know massive bubbles and so forth so that's going to help with your your do and it's going to lift water and start mixing water so that your higher do on the surface water is going to be you know exchanging with the water that's very low do on the bottom 
So yeah, those are things that you can do. And, but those are things that you want to do before the problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then once there's times when I won't touch upon, I just, it has to just run its course and you just, you just hope and pray that you don't get a fish kill. Yeah. And, and if we get past that point, then put some management practices in place. Then we do some management practices. What got us here? You know, how can we avoid going back here? And that's where we might run phycocyanin counts with our fluorimeter, our, our, our little instrument. And we look for benchmark levels of cyanobacteria that might have been the problem originally. And we might do a treatment on the lake to try to reduce that cyanobacteria before it becomes, you know, because then it can, they can reproduce and they can double their biomass in 24 hours. I mean, they just explode. That's crazy. It is. And I'm seeing more and more of it in, you know, Western lakes and so forth. So it's a problem. What's the craziest thing you've had to remove from a, from a pond? It was probably that the, four, four the, foot catfish. The catfish. <laughs> yeah, the catfish. <laughs> no, no bodies or anything? Guns? Uh, AKs? No, not yet. Not, not I'm, not, I'm not looking bags for, of money. <laughs> I'm not looking for stuff like that. <laughs> Did you, have you sonared the Cal Park? Like, uh, how so? You mean like with, with like your your fish finder? Um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I bet that's interesting. Yeah, I haven't. So actually, I haven't. And if you'd like, we could probably do that with the, uh, the yeah. helix. Yeah, that'd be that would be really cool because I need to learn that thing anyway. I don't think I can get under the bridge. <laughs> that's all right. Center console. We I can just do really, the main lake. Yeah, yeah, I'm interested to know where those Christmas trees are, and they're on that side of the lake, right? <laughs> I do know that they're on the big side of the lake. Well, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Jeff. Appreciate it. I know we're, you and I are going to have a sushi eat tomorrow night at your house. Yeah, Toro, uh, yeah. belly of the bluefin. Yeah, I'm on rice duty. I'm, so, we're looking forward to learning your secret. Yeah, it's going to be secret. awesome. So Neutralon's website, how can people find you online? Uh, I think it's www.neutralon.net. And, and then do, do you have a separate site for your um, for your pond business or not? No, it's part of that okay you know, it's all, it's one of the services under there okay, sure cool um any are you guys on facebook anything else you want to plug before we go um you'd have to ask my office manager <laughs> spoken <laughs> like a true owner <laughs> that's awesome all right thank you very much again uh thank you guys for listening hope this episode was was enjoyable for you and you can apply some of jeff's knowledge to your your angling game if you want to check us out on instagram uh we are at barbless.co nick's uh instagram handle is at norcal fly guy mine is at chad alderson uh keep the keep the listening and comments coming if you guys feel like rating us please do so um google and uh iphone apps kind of a weird way to end it but i knew yeah you guys know you're on your you're listening okay anyway i'm out thank you guys this podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, FishBio and Amp.Build. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Bill. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.build.